This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brott. Hello and welcome to today's Positive Parenting Show. I'm Armin Brott. You know, everyone has an opinion about discipline. There's lots of experts out there who weigh in on the subject from pretty much every possible angle, and parents often say that they feel totally lost in knowing what works and what doesn't or what they're supposed to be doing, what they're not supposed to be doing. And the reality is that despite all of this information coming in from all sides, parents are finding that a lot of these these approaches are not only ineffective, they're actually damaging our children when they're most vulnerable. By the time our kids are about two years old, we have tons and tons of unanswered questions about discipline and which way to go. Am I going to mess up my child for life? Is everyone around me going to judge my parenting? Is my child going to be able to survive in a kindergarten classroom? Am I being too tough? Am I being too soft? Does she know that I love her? Will he still love me? Is this going to work? Am I slowly wrecking her? If it doesn't feel right, what should I do and why should I do it? These kinds of questions are completely natural for all big people to have. And in this part of today's show, we're going to be talking about those questions and a lot more. But in this show, we're going to do things a little bit differently than we've done when we've talked about discipline in the past. We're going to be putting all of this into perspective of brain science and child development. And then we're going to take that basic foundation and turn it into a plan, the discipline plan that you can use for your child. I'm Armin Brott. We'll start a discussion about how to discipline your kids and how to get them to behave without messing them up when Positive Parenting continues right after this. If we could pack our kids in bubble wrap, we'd do it because we love them and we want to protect them. This is Lisa Edelstein with an easy way to protect your kids three times a day. Choose healthy foods. Research has shown that a vegetarian diet rich in fruits and vegetables can help protect our kids against obesity. It can even help keep them from developing heart disease or cancer when they grow up. To learn more, call 866-906-WELL or visit cancerproject.org. This message brought to you by The Cancer Project. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Braun. My guest for this part of today's show is Vanessa LaPointe, who is the author of Discipline Without Damage, How to Get Your Kids to Behave Without Messing Them Up. Vanessa, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. You know, let's start off with something, because I think we all hear about discipline, and probably most people understand that you know, discipline, if you look at the, the root of it, it's not about punishment. It's about guiding. But let's have you take us through a little bit about what it is and what it isn't so that we'll kind of know where we're going with the rest of this discussion. Well, discipline, unfortunately, I think in today's fast-paced society has gotten a little bit off track in terms of where it needs to be for us to be really parenting our children from a developmentally responsive kind of place. I think discipline has become, for a lot of people, uh, efforts, whatever form or shape they may take, to get the behavior to stop at all costs. And what I believe discipline needs to be about is really understanding developmentally what is happening for children underneath all of that behavior. If we can go in behind the behavior and go into the soul and the mind and the brain of this growing child, we would find ourselves responding in very different ways than what, let's say, traditional methods might um, otherwise have us believe is appropriate. Well, I've got to ask you the question that I ask pretty much everybody who comes on, which is how do you get 
from where you are in the moment, which is where most of us are when any sort of a discipline issue comes up, we're right there, something's happening, you got to act quickly. How do you get past that so you can actually take a look at the information that we're going to be talking about today, about the, the science of, of child development and brain development? I mean, how do you stop for a couple seconds and think Mm-hmm. through this stuff before you actually act. I mean, it's it's one thing to be sitting in a quiet moment while your kids are asleep and reading about it right. or, or listening, <laughs> to, listening to a radio show about it while you're driving and everything is fine, but then to put that into into action is a whole different thing. Yeah, and I think, you know, the action really needs to be informed by um, a conscious awareness and a decision to approach parenting from a very specific kind of place. And there's a reason why when I wrote uh, the book, the first half of the book actually talks very little about what's going to happen in the moment and is all a lead up into how it is that we're going to become what our children need in those moments. Uh, When we can understand what our children need and we can really internalize that understanding, it changes the lens that we look out onto the world with and changes how we see our children in those moments. When we can change how we see them, very naturally and very intuitively, our actions flowing from that will look quite different. If we see our children as willful and manipulative and and challenging, we're, we're going to be fueled to be quite reactive in ways that probably aren't super responsive from a developmental perspective. But if we see our children as struggling and needing support and needing compassion in order for their brains and their souls to grow up the way that nature intended, we're going to find ourselves coming at those moments from a very different kind of place, and our behaviors and responses in turn will be colored by that. So I know you're not saying this, but it one could interpret this as saying in a way that you're sort of giving up, that you're not going to be guiding or helping to move your child in a particular direction, but that that you'll just give them what they need at, at any particular mm-hmm. moment rather than, you know, brain development-wise, rather than what they might need in a more guiding, mentoring sort of way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting because I think to a very sort of uh, naive eye, if you were looking in on this and, and you didn't really know a lot about child uh, development, your immediate response to watching a parent respond to a child from a developmentally informed, damage-free kind of place would be really, you're going to let them get away with that, right, where there is this sense that you're not doing anything. But when you understand brain development and you understand the science of child development, what you very quickly come to see is that in responding through connection and working to regulate the brain, what you are in fact doing is supporting development. And in supporting development, you're helping the behavior uh, to settle and to calm. And in fact, creating possibilities down the road for an increasing level of regulation, which means fewer and fewer behaviors as we go along. You know, one of the things you write about that's kind of counterintuitive is a whole bunch of not uh, counterintuitive stuff in here. But one of them is I, I think a lot of people have this idea that the goal of parenting in general is to get your child to be able to make good choices, to be able to mm-hmm. have self-control. And you write very specifically that discipline is not self-control. Could you explain that a little bit? Sure. And that really is rooted in an understanding of neuroscience and brain development. When we look at how the brain develops, it's thickening in a wave-like manner, starting at the base at the back of the brain and pushing forward. 
we know that children come into the ability to exert control over their impulses and other things only once their frontal and prefrontal cortex right at the front of the brain um, has matured. And that's the last part of the brain to actually come online in the way that we're talking about in terms of children being able to make you know, good decisions and good choices in the moment, particularly when their emotions are running high and they're feeling frustrated or something else has challenged them. And so the idea is that if we can come alongside and support uh, children in the moment by connecting with them and regulating their feelings and all of those kinds of things, we actually promote increasing capacity alongside their path of development so that they will eventually be able to grow into adults who, who genuinely yearn to make good decisions, yearn um, to be settled and sorted and contributing to the world around them. So how much actual science do you need to know here? And I'm, I'm asking that because I think there are probably some parents who are, are listening and saying, oh, my God, I, I can't believe that I'm going to have <laughs> to go to graduate school and, and get right. a degree in neuroscience or child development. I just want to raise my kids. How am I going to do that? You know, I don't think you need to know a lot of science. I think that we all have a responsibility as grown-ups who are working to grow children up in the best possible way to have a healthy respect for the science of child development to the extent that we know brain development proceeds in the best possible way when children are responded to with care and compassion. And there's a lot of science in child development that shows us that when children are responded to that way, the wiring that gets set up in the core of their brain where all of that emotional regulation and self-control flows from is going to be the kind of wiring that we want to see so that they can make those good decisions in moments when things have become uh, a little bit challenging and a little bit different. Uh, but that's all you really need to know about the science of it. The rest of it is just making sure that you're, you're staying true to that and that your parenting and your efforts to guide your children emanate from that place of compassionate caring. And how much of your own parenting or your own having been mm -hmm. parented do you have to overcome? Because the natural thing for us mostly is to slip into what our own parents did. Absolutely. And we hear a lot, you know, I hear a lot as a psychologist and also in talking around with other friends that I have that are parents as well, that we often do slip back into um, habits or patterns that would have been sculpted for us in our own experiences of having been grown up. But what we also find uh, very powerfully is that a lot of parents come into an awakening of their own when they are able to see the needs of their child and really take those needs to heart. They simultaneously have a sense of their own inner child um, getting some of that care and growing up that it may be missed out on early on. And so we can see sort of things come full circle and parents growing themselves up alongside their growing children. And again, that's a question, though, of having the time to take a couple of deep breaths and say, hmm, what was this like for my parents or what, what, was, what was happening? How do, how do I understand that and then change the direction that we're going? Absolutely. And, you know, the idea of time is one that comes up a lot. I think that we live in a world that's very fast-paced, and as a result of that, parents are often looking for and really desperately seeking quick fixes to things. And, and the challenge is that we don't have time to not have time. 
We, uh, our children need us to be able to take that breath. They need us to invite some conscious awareness around how we're approaching parenting because ultimately that's what's going to give them the best possible shot. Talking with Dr. Vanessa LaPointe, who's the author of Discipline Without Damage, How to Get Your Kids to Behave Without Messing Them Up. We're going to take a quick break here, and when we come back, we're going to keep talking to Vanessa. I want to get into some of those things that we're going to be doing after we take that big, deep breath and, and start uh, understanding where it is that we're that we're going and what, what it is that we want to do, and a little bit more about the, the brain science. And then, of course, there's the parts about how to actually take all of this information that you're getting and distill it down and put it into practice in your own home. I'm Armin Brunt, and you're listening to Positive Parenting. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brunt. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Vanessa LaPointe, who's the author of Discipline Without Damage, How to Get Your Kids to Behave Without Messing Them Up. And we were talking up until now about the idea of, of the brain development and needing to understand that. But there's another interesting idea here, which is, to before we move on to some of the, the real serious business here, uh, you talk about the discipline vortex, which is kind of this, this horrible little vicious circle that you get into. There's a behavior, then there's some sort of a, an activation that, that happens in your mind as a parent, and then there's something that you do which then triggers or maybe even makes the situation worse. Why don't you give us a, a quick example and take us through about how the, the various places where we could be making different choices? Well, sure. So the discipline vortex is something that I talk about in terms of really bringing some understanding to why a lot of parents feel like they're running around in circles trying to manage their children's behavior and not really getting anywhere. And the discipline vortex comes about because of how we're responding to the child's uh, behavior in the first place. So let's say a child misbehaves, something happens, they swat at their sibling who wasn't um, sharing a toy with them or whatever the case might be. And the parent decides to come down on that behavior quite firmly as instructed by the dominant parenting culture. So let's say the parent chooses to impose a consequence or um, to put the child in timeout or something along those lines. The issue with those kinds of responses is that they are backed by an experience of emotional disconnection for the child. So basically, a child's most essential and foundational need in terms of growing up in the healthiest way possible is an emotional connection to their big person, their parent, um, that they see exists no matter what the circumstances around them. When a child is having a hard time, their brain has become dysregulated, and then we throw a bunch of disconnection at them through timeouts or other kinds of traditional responses to behavior, what we're really doing is dysregulating them more. So now we've unsettled them and we've freaked them out with that disconnection kind of response, thereby uh, dysregulating them. That dysregulation has to go somewhere. And so the dysregulation comes out. Freud had this saying, this saying uh, better out than in, that which stays in festers. And so the child's going to let all that dysregulation out. And the way children express that dysregulation is through these challenging behaviors that we get to see. Well, now your child's just responded with some more misbehavior. What is a grown-up to do? Respond with some more discipline, right? And so you can see we discipline, they get freaked out, they act out with behavior. We discipline, they get freaked out, they act out with behavior, and thus we go around and around in the discipline vortex. 
So the idea in terms of pulling out of the discipline vortex is to stop it, to stop responding to discipline, uh, pardon me, to behavior with those traditional kinds of responses um, in terms of discipline, and instead go immediately to a place of connection. So you can come alongside your child, find your child regulated in the moment. Once you've got them calmed and settled, you come back to them with a little bit of teaching about what you hope will be uh, happening next time around when they find themselves in that same situation or circumstance, and on we go. And the brain uh, wires and grows and develops in response to all of that, Mm -hmm. and we eventually have kids who can regulate well. You know, to make this a little bit easier to grasp, can you give us just a quick example? You have one uh, in here about the case of the troublesome trampoline, mm-hmm. but that, that's kind of long. Can you give us a, a short example of a, of a situation and then maybe take us through some of the options that we have available to us and some of the ones that we hadn't considered? Mm-hmm. And so if a child, uh, let's say in the case of Sophia and the troublesome trampoline, she really wants on the trampoline, but her brother beats her to it, and she has a little bit of a meltdown around that. And so rather than sending Sophia away or coming at her with some um, forceful language about how inappropriate her behaviors are, what we want to do is enter into the situation first and foremost with, with connection. So it might sound something like, oh, Sophia, how disappointed you must feel. You know, if I were you and that happened to me, I think I would feel exactly the same way. That's so upsetting. And so you come alongside, you give her some sense of being understood, and then you right away move into caregiving. And so the idea is that you want to sort of regulate her and move her through to a different place. So you might say, why don't you come with me? I'm going to grab you a drink of water. Let's have a little sit down. I've got you. We're okay. I'm going to take care of this with you. And then once Sophia has settled and calmed and all of the angry, yelly, shouties uh, in her have subsided, then you might move through to a place of saying, you know, a little earlier when your brother got the trampoline first and you were so mad and you threw your shoes at him. Well, here's the thing. The next time around, I want you to remember that we don't ever solve our problems by throwing things or hitting or saying mean things. And if you're having a hard time about that, you can just come and find me, and I'm going to help you through that. Can I count on you to do that? And thereby, we uh, invite from Sophia an intention to do better next time around, and we carry on. Okay. And how don't you want to get Sophia involved in this, though, by having a little bit more of a conversation? Because it sounds like you're talking to her and telling mm-hmm. her all these things. Wouldn't you want to engage her in the conversation and let her reach some of these conclusions on her own? You know, I think that's an excellent question to be asking. And the answer to that depends uh, very much developmentally on where the child is at, but also emotionally where a child is at. So certainly as children grow and uh, get older, uh, they will uh, come into a place where they'll be really yearning for and wanting and should be having some back and forth in that conversation. And so inviting ideas from the child about what might work better next time around and what do they think about all of that would be a good idea. On the other hand, for a child who's struggling emotionally, routinely finding themselves dysregulated, routinely getting into you know a lot of difficult situations and having a hard time settling around all of that, my advice would actually be for the parent to be coming alongside and doing a lot of that work for the child at least initially. In my book, I talk about really um, understanding your child's level of need, and I call it their needs barometer. 
when your children have a high level of need, they need for you to problem solve for them. Uh, but when they're doing a little bit better and their their level of need isn't so high and or they're a little bit older and so developmentally capable of more things, then certainly we would want them to have an increasing voice in that conversation. What ages are you talking about here? Is this something you think that you could start with a teenager if you haven't been doing it all along, or are we talking about mostly younger kids? Yeah, you know, I get that question a lot, and I think the worry for a lot of people is that if you are parenting um, preteens or adolescents, uh, maybe you've missed the boat and there isn't a way to go back. But the reality is our children's brains are still actively growing and developing and changing as a result of the experiences they're having in the world around them until their early 20s. And so this is applicable whether we're talking about uh, toddlers and preschoolers or all the way on up into our adolescence. Parenting through connection and being able to respond with that compassionate lens to all of their challenging behaviors mm-hmm. is important for a child of any age. Uh, talk a little bit about the the uh, see-it-feel-it-be-it approach, and I, you've kind of described that a little bit without using mm-hmm. that particular phrase, but put that into, into perspective for us. So the see-it-feel-it-be-it mantra is a, is a guiding sort of approach that's sort of woven all the way through the book and indeed through my practice both as a psychologist and as a parent that invites you to first see what's happening. So you're just going to look in on the situation. You're going to take stock of what you see going down, and you're going to sit with that. And then as you see that, I want you to then second go to a place of really feeling for the child what's happening for them. So if you can really see that your child is undone and they are struggling and they are having a really difficult time, and you can move to a place of feeling for them what it must be like, What does it feel like to be a child who doesn't have necessarily the neuroinfrastructure to bring themselves back online and get themselves regulated, and they're melting down and things are feeling out of control? If you can invite a feeling into your heart and soul for what's going down for the child in that moment, then you are very naturally and very intuitively going to be moved through a place of being for your child what they need from you in that moment. So first, see what's happening. Second, invite a feeling inside yourself about that. And third, allow yourself to then be what your child needs in that moment. I often talk with um, grown-ups around all of this, and I say to them, you know, if you had a a person, a friend of yours come uh, towards you and they were full of grief about something, maybe they had lost a loved one or something tragic and terrible had gone down, do you need me to tell you how to respond to that that person in the moment? Or are you from somewhere inside of you because you feel something for them, able to be for them in that moment what it is that they need? And we need to have that same sort of um, responsiveness around our children when they're struggling with behaviors. Talking with Vanessa LaPointe, who is the author of Discipline Without Damage, How to Get Your Kids to Behave Without Messing Them Up. Vanessa, thanks for joining us. And your website is... Dr. Dr. Vanessa, Vanessa oh, go ahead, you do it. DrVanessaLapointe.com. Easy enough. Okay, thank you so much. Perfect, thank you for having me. Did you know one in three adults is at risk for kidney disease, and kidney failure is more than three times higher in African Americans? If you have high blood pressure or diabetes, you could be the one. Visit the National Kidney Foundation at kidney.org. Now you know.
Hey there, welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. I want to jump into this week's Ask Mr. Dad column because it's a question that I'm getting more and more often for some reason. Dear Mr. Dad, my 24-year-old son and his wife are expecting their first baby in a few weeks. I'm really happy for him, and I'm looking forward to meeting my new granddaughter. The problem is that I'm not even 50 yet, and I can't wrap my head around the fact that I'm going to be a grandfather. I take good care of myself. I look pretty good for my age and just don't feel like a grandparent. What can I do? This is definitely not your grandparents' grandparenthood with its images of gray hair and round-the-world cruises and senior citizen discounts and things like that. Unfortunately, no matter how young you feel and how much you work out and how great you look or how much of your hair you have left, there's still one thing that's going to make you and everyone else around you painfully aware that you're getting older And that's that adorable little tot running around to meet you at the front door screaming, Hi, Grandpa, what did you bring me? Becoming a grandparent at a young age can be a real shock to the ego, something that a lot of us would prefer to keep safely in the future. And I'll tell you, as the father of a 25-year-old and a 21-year-old who are living away from home, I'm hoping that that's way in the future for me. But if it makes you feel any better, you are far from alone. According to AARP, which used to be called the American Association for Retired Persons, not anymore, it's just AARP, and which you can't join until you're 50 anyway, the average age of first-time grandparents is about 47, which almost no one considers old anymore anyway. A recent study of Gen Xers, who are kids who were born between 1964 and 1980, by MetLife found that only 27% would consider themselves old before the age of 60. 35% said that old is somewhere between 60 and 69. 25% said they wouldn't be old until they were 70 or older. No matter how much you prepare yourself, once that first grandchild shows up, your life will change in some pretty serious ways. Here are some steps you can take to make the transition a little bit less jarring. First of all, say no a lot. Are your children going to be counting on you to help with their baby? If so, that could mean making significant changes in your schedule. But since 75% of Gen Xers are working, 65% are working full-time, 10% are working part-time, that may not be so easy. Next, be a grown-up. Too many young grandfathers feel the need to prove that they aren't old by working longer hours or running faster or shooting more baskets than their sons and their sons-in-law. Young grandmothers can fall into the same trap, too, but for them, it's more about trying to look younger than their daughter or daughter-in-law. And since they typically have more disposable income to spend on stylish clothes and plastic surgery, those daughters and daughters-in-law can end up feeling kind of jealous and also kind of resentful. No turf wars. When you were a kid, grandparents were revered and respected as the senior members of the family. But since you're so young, there's a good chance that your own parents and maybe even your grandparents are still around. And since they're older and supposedly wiser than you, they may feel that they should have a bigger voice in how their great or great-great-grandchildren should be raised. Ultimately, it's really up to your son and his wife to decide whose sage advice to follow and whose to ignore. Finally, welcome change. Now, You're not old, but you are getting older, just like the rest of us. So by all means, keep living your life, but don't pass up any opportunities to spend time with your grandchildren. As you no doubt have discovered with your own kids, they're only young once, and it goes by in such a flash. You'll really never forgive yourself if you miss too much of it. 
We'll be back next week with another Ask Mr. Dad column or a Parents at Play column, depending on which week it is. But don't go away quite yet because there is a lot more positive parenting coming up right ahead. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brott, after this, from the MrDad.com radio network. Jill, why don't you tell the class what you did this weekend? Well, my dad and I went in search of some magical minnows and found a zillion of them in the stream from our lookout rock. Then my sister and I escaped from an evil slug king and went back to my super twig fort for safety. Then we told stories till it got dark, and the Big Dipper led us all the way home. Where were you, Jill? We went to the forest. It's not that far away. Ask your parents to take you and your friends to the forest this week. It's closer than you think. Check out discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Now, get ready for more positive parenting with Armin Brott from the MrDad.com radio network. Hello and welcome to the second part of today's Positive Parenting Show. I'm Armin Brott. All you have to do is turn on the TV or the radio or open up a newspaper or flip to your favorite website and you'll hear from financial advisors and their money managers and analysts, and they will tell you that your finances are enormously complex. And if you don't listen to their advice, you're going to ruin your chances of retirement. You're going to run your savings into the ground, and you're going to end up in the poorhouse. But here's a newsflash. They are wrong. When University of Chicago professor Harold Pollack interviewed Helene Olin, who's an award-winning financial journalist and the author of a best-selling book called Pound Foolish, he made kind of a flip suggestion. Hey, you know what? Everything you need to know about managing your money can fit onto an index card. And to prove his point, he grabbed a 4x6 card, scribbled down a list of rules, and posted a picture of the card online. The post went viral. In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking with Harold Pollack about his 4x6 card. And we're going to get his no-nonsense, jargon-free take on finances that's going to cut through all of the white noise and provide us with some real value. So grab yourself something to write with and something perhaps a little bit bigger than a 4x6 card and get ready to write down these 10 simple rules that are going to create a disarmingly simple financial plan that's going to get you and your family through tough times and good times. When you have breast cancer, these are some of the first words you hear. HER2 new oncogene, ductile carcinoma in situ. What do they mean? How can you decide what to do if you can't even say what you have? This is Olivia Newton-John. You can go to breastcancer.org, a special place on the Internet where you can learn how to say all those medical words and find out what they mean. Understand your diagnosis and your treatment options. Breastcancer.org. The first place to go the minute you find out you have breast cancer. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guest for this part of today's show is Harold Pollack, who is the author, the co-author of The Index Card, Why Personal Finance Doesn't Have to be Complicated. Harold, thanks for joining us. 
Oh, thanks so much for having me. You know, in, in the introduction, I mentioned how you got started with this thing, sort of a flip comment about, hey, you ought to be able to write this. It's not that complicated. I ought to be able to put it on a piece of paper. Uh, is that about the extent of the story, or is there more to it than that? Well, you know, I had there's a little bit more to it than that. Uh, I actually, until I was about age 40, I really didn't manage my money very effectively, and it was only when I had a sort of personal financial crisis uh, that uh, my, my mother-in-law actually died suddenly, and her son, who's uh, intellectually disabled, had to move into our home, and my wife had to leave the workforce to take care of him. And all of a sudden, we had some pretty serious money issues, as you might imagine. I can imagine, yeah. And I tried to, and, and at, at that point, I sort of had to really grow up in a hurry. And and I really took stock of, you know, what I what I knew about finance and the things that people had told me, and uh, and I realized so much of what's out there, uh, you know, is not helpful, and so much of what you really have to know is really pretty simple, and um, uh, and so. So it you know it took some time, but really, uh, you know, that what ended up on that card was kind of a distillation of the things that I learned while trying to get my own finances in order yeah. in a difficult time, and uh, so I, that's why I, uh, I I thought it was important to share it with people. Oh, absolutely, and I think we're going to be able to hopefully have people uh, be able to skip the difficulties you went through, and maybe <laughs> I hope so solve some of those things. So let's start off with the first one. I think we, yeah. it sounds I guess all of these in a way sound simple. But I think they're probably a little bit harder to explain, which is why we have a, a book that's uh, more than 200 pages as opposed to just a single sheet of <laughs> single sheet of paper. Exactly. Uh, but t- talk about number one, which is say, strive to save 10 to 20 percent of your income. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, by the way, my original index card said save 20 percent of your money. And I got a bunch of emails from people that were, were of the form, Dear Professor Pollock, I'm a 28-year-old single mom. You just told me to save 20 percent of my money you know, blank you or whatever, or some <laughs> version of that. Yeah. And yeah. I was always, and I, I could only say, you know, I get that totally. It's hard to save your money. Um, and, um, and the goal is not to go on a sort of starvation diet, but to make sure that you're actually spending your money on the things that are important to you in a realistic way. So, you know, if you're the kind of person who just needs a Starbucks $3 coffee every morning to get going, great. Uh, you know, just make sure there's something else that you're balancing if you don't have a lot of money so that you can comfortably do that. Right. If you if you don't care about coffee, then, you know, why don't you skip it and save some money and, and take that money and spend it on something else? I think most of us have so, at least some room where we can where we can save a little more, spend a little less. One of the things we talk about in the book is try to pay cash as much as you can for things. There's a lot of evidence that when you pull that plastic credit card out of your out of your pocket or the debit card, that you're just a little bit looser with the way you spend your money. Uh, it's yeah, well, that's good to thanks to all the ads we hear or the ads we see where it's just easy. You just whip it out and pay for it. They never have an ad where they show anybody writing checks. No. You know? you know, by the way, one of the tips that I think is very helpful is ignore your credit card reward program because – when you start thinking about that reward program, what happens is you spend more money. Yeah. Well, let, let's get to that one. I want to go yeah. back to the, the 20%, okay. the 10 yeah. to 20% thing. So mm-hmm. are you suggesting, so you get a check, so you're, are you in, you're saving 10 to 20% of your after-tax dollars of your net take-home pay? Or, and do you suggest, I mean, I heard, have heard various theories about this, you pay yourself first. So you immediately take 10% and put it aside, or 
you know, does, does putting taking advantage of your employer's 401k program count as the 10 to 20 percent? How give us a little bit more? I actually am pretty. There. I'm more strict than you are. I count the uh, you know your your gross pay. You know whatever your official salary is before they take stuff out, and oh that's boy. what you okay. want to save ten to twenty percent of. And I I do all my saving right off the top by having it taken right out of my paycheck, put into my four hundred one k. You know or other ways that I save. I never have to touch it. I never have to think about it. I get there's a, you know there's some tax advantages, and my employer uh, puts in some money to match my four hundred one k. And, um, you know, be paying yourself first is a great rule, and it reduces the stress involved. You know, you just, you know, it's just never, it's, it's just something that you never have to think about. It's done for you mm-hmm. automatically every month. Yeah, and I, I also hear sometimes if you get a raise, try to put that entire amount. If you were able to make it before on what you were, what you were getting by on before, take the entire amount of the raise and start saving that, or at least some portion of it that makes it, that makes it easier, right? I think that's a great idea. The only the only exception I would make to that is if you have some sort of outstanding credit card debt, right. pay that right. off first. But but absolutely, it's a it's a lot easier to maintain your current lifestyle and save more than it is to cut back on your lifestyle. So you want to make you want to you know work that in your favor. Yeah. I also have I also have this kind of hokey, but I have bank accounts that have different names. Like I have a vacation account, and I have a kid's college account, and I have things that that are meaningful to me. So whenever yeah. I take money and I put it into it, I say, oh, I'm, it's going into next year's vacation. Oh, I think that's a fantastic idea. I've got something very similar set up. Every, most of what I do is freelance money. Uh, I, every, every check that I get, I take half of it and I put it in some account. And a, a big chunk of that half goes into my tax account because I'm going to have to be paying taxes at some point on that stuff. So Absolutely. having it in an account that's called the tax account, it, it in a way tells me, keep your hands off of this, you know. Do do not touch this because you're going to need it. So. Yeah, whatever whatever works for you in that yeah. way. And the goal is to make something reasonable and livable. You know, it's not like you're, you know, what you shouldn't be living in a tent in your backyard and renting out your house. Uh, you know, it's that you're trying to make it uh, something that's very sensible and methodical. All right, so let's talk about that credit card thing because that mm-hmm. is so huge. I think so many people. You know, I, I, I have been paying off for years my credit card balances completely every time, so I don't really even pay attention to what the interest rates are. But every once in a while, I look at the at the statement, and it says, you know, if you don't pay this, you're going to be paying 20, like 29%. You think, that's illegal. Yeah. Or it, it ought to be. It is phenomenal. The interest rates that you pay on your credit card are so huge. And if you have, particularly if you have an outstanding balance that, uh, you know, we tend to think we get a grace period when we use our credit card. You don't really only get that grace period on, on stuff when you're paying off your credit card in full. So, you know, when you pay down your credit card, uh, if you're just, you know, if you if you say you have a couple thousand dollars on your credit card that you've been struggling to pay down, every dollar that you put in to pay that debt down, you're getting a completely risk-free and tax-free return of like 15% depending on which what your credit card is, you know, the interest rate's going to vary. But it's going to be way, way better than any other investment anybody who's not named Warren Buffett is going to be able to do. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah. so the first priority is to, is to chip away at that debt. And, um, you know, for many, many people, absolutely the best thing they can do is to work on their credit card. It's not only the interest rate, by the way, it's also all sorts of fees. One of the 
remarkable things for people who who have a low credit rating and who are sort of struggling with their finances. A lot of the money that they pay to the credit card company is actually in the not interest; it's fees. It, you know, I went over my limit. I paid it late. Yeah, yeah. That kind of thing, and you just you just really want to do whatever you can to avoid getting into that trap. Uh, and uh, now, if your credit card debts are really high, uh, you know that's when you you, know, you might want to go and get some financial help to see. Uh, you know, if it's unpayable, then uh, then it's a different conversation. But fortunately, right. for most of us, that's not the issue. Right, but I think one little piece of advice I'd throw in there is take a look on somewhere on the statement. I think it's almost every statement that you get from credit card companies. It must be a, a legal requirement that they have now is if you pay the minimum payment, it will take you this long. And if you pay less than the minimum payment or something, you know, so you, you, it's shocking to see, yeah. you know, it, for a $2,000 balance, it could take you five or six years to pay that off if you if you just do the minimum payment. So even if you're throwing an extra five or ten bucks at it, you're going to, again, as you're saying, you're going to get a, a, a high return on that money. Yeah, there's, there's nothing magical, by the way, about the minimum payment, except that if you pay less, if you pay you a penalty. Get a late there's, yeah. there's absolutely no reason to only pay the minimum payment. That is, it, uh, you know, you should not let that psychologically anchor you at that amount. You want to pay as much as you can that's above that. And what do you think about the trying to kind of arbitrage uh, everything over to zero interest or zero transfer fees, those kinds of things. Are you an advocate of using those, or is there a way to that you should not use them? What a great question. I think, well, I, I think you should prioritize paying. If you have multiple credit cards, you should always pay off the one with the highest interest rate first. Pay, the, pay at least the minimum on everything. But whatever money you have available for your credit cards, pay down the one with the highest interest rate. Prioritize that. Um, the the sort of offer thing is that can sometimes that can be helpful but you got to be careful with that in two ways one is you have to be a little honest with yourself about how much you're spending on your credit cards and if you're if you're doing that a lot you're probably spending too much on your credit cards if you're sort of spending a lot of your time thinking about how can i move something from one card to another uh, a lot of these things if you really look at the terms of it uh you know, the, you can transfer that balance at zero percent, but there's an awful lot of fine print. Oh yeah, right. and and so it is. Uh, you know, it, it can be helpful, but it's also something that can can, can get you in more trouble. So I, I think that yeah. that uh, you know that that if you're doing that, you it really has to be part of a strategy that says, hey, I'm really paying off my credit card debt, and I'm not just trying to shift it over right. Uh, right. so that I don't have to worry about it because there's going to be a point where um, where that's hard. Now, whatever your highest rate interest c- card is, take that and uh, you know put it in the drawer and don't use it, even as you're paying it off. You know, don't run up any new right. charges on things that have high interest rates. But I, I, I sort of when people have these clever strategies for juggling their credit cards, I think okay, that's I see I see there's some value in that, but it also they, that that should be that's definitely not your first line of defense with these things. Talking with Harold Pollack, who's the co-author of The Index Card, Why Personal Finance Doesn't Have to be Complicated. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep talking to Harold. 
You must be your fairy godmother. <laughs> yes. It doesn't take a fairy godmother to tell you that the right fit means everything. Good heavens, child. You can't go in that. Children under four foot nine need to be in a booster seat because they aren't ready for adult safety belts alone. Remember that four foot nine is the magic number and get your little pumpkin there safely in a booster seat. Oh, thank you. For more information, visit boosterseat.gov. This has been a message from the U.S. Department of Transportation and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Harold Pollack, who is the co-author of The Index Card, Why Personal Finance Doesn't Have to be Complicated. I want to move on. There are there are 10 different strategies here, and we're, of course, not going to get to all of them, but mm-hmm. I want to combine a few of them. You've got never buy or sell individual stocks, and then you also have buy inexpensive, well-diversified indexed mutual funds or exchange-traded funds. Let's talk about those those together. I think, you know, one of the things I actually had this conversation with my financial advisor person about there was a time when I was investing in individual stocks and realized after a while that, you know, I pick up the newspaper, the Wall Street Journal or whatever, and and I think, oh, there's a cool thing to buy. But the market has already taken that into account. And so it's extremely unlikely that I'm going to have some sort of inside track on anything. And is that one of the reasons why you're suggesting staying away from individual stocks, as tempting as it is? Absolutely. And, you know, there's some awfully shiny objects. The only really fantastic way to buy individual stocks is to get a time machine and then go back and buy Apple stock, you know, 20 years ago and that sort of thing. Uh, there's really no way to pick stocks effectively. The, the people, all the, all the evidence is that almost everybody, when they buy and sell individual stocks, uh, does much worse than if you just bought the market average and didn't do anything with it. And you know, even you know, the highly skilled financial professionals who run mutual funds, those people typically underperform the market. And it's just, uh, there's just no reason to get into you know, what's going to happen to the next iPhone, that sort of thing. You just buy the cheapest stock index fund you can find, and you don't mess with it, and you, don't, you really don't have to read the business section of the paper at all. Uh, in terms of what's happening to the stock market, uh, and it, it, that think of how wonder, liberating that is, and how wonderful that is. I just don't have to care about any individual company. Uh, you know, my entire stock holdings. You know, I own like four or five funds. That's where all my retirement and all my kids' college and everything. And it 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 really makes your life a lot easier. It would be just terrible if, in order to secure your retirement, you really had to become an expert on you know how is Chrysler doing or something like that. So I just avoid that whole area. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about the, the one of these things. I'm looking at rule number seven, which is mm-hmm. buy a home when you're financially ready. And I remember that hit me all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. It kind of reminded me of my parents saying something the opposite, but about having kids. If you, like, if you wait until you're ready to have kids, <laughs> you'll never have kids. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. So, I mean, is there a point, you know, should everybody be looking ahead to buying a house? Is that generally the best investment? And then should you push it a little bit? Because, you know, if you if you look at it just straight across dollars, you have a mortgage payment of $2,000 or a rent payment of $2,000. You're actually 
getting something more for the mortgage payment. You're getting a tax deduction. You're getting all sorts of stuff. So, I mean, should you push a little bit on that, or, or is there such a thing as being financially ready? I, I personally do not believe you should push things. I think your house is the. You should view your house as the thing that you live in, and the and the thing that determines where your kids are going to go to school. There's a bunch of things about your house as something that you use rather than as an investment. You know, that's what's really important. There, um, it's the most undiversified investment that you can make. Uh, it's also, it's very hard to get money out of your house if. Um, you know, suppose your house declines in value and you have to move all of a sudden. You have a problem. Uh, if you, you know, if somebody loses a job or the furnace explodes or the roof gets a bad leak or all this, there are all these expenses that are associated with owning a house, and there are all these risks that come with it financially. And I, I, I think that it's not something that you that you rush into, and it's not something that you try to buy as much of a house as you can as an investment strategy. I think that you're much better off, you know, buying the buying a house that you can easily afford and if you can save beyond that, uh, you know, put it into your retirement and things like that. I um, I told you that I had a financial crisis in my own life. What saved me in that crisis was that I had a a pretty cheap house and I could really, uh, you know, I, I I could stop going to Starbucks. I couldn't stop making my mortgage payment. But fortunately, my mortgage payment was pretty low. And, uh, you know, you're, I, I looked at what happened to a lot of my friends when the foreclosure crisis hit. And, boy, it was really painful for a lot of people. So I, I'm not a big believer in sinking money, uh, uh, you know, into your house that, that, that's beyond your comfort zone. Mm-hmm. So you would stay away from, from uh, variable rate mortgages? Absolutely, especially interest rates now are so low that why 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 add that additional risk in your life when you can get just this? I'm a big believer in the vanilla ice cream 30-year uh, fixed-rate mortgage, and uh, you know right now their interest rates are quite low, and if you can't afford to buy the house that you want with that sort of a mortgage, you really need to take a second look and say, is this house maybe a little too expensive for me? Because if I get an adjustable rate mortgage, what will I do if interest rates go up and I'm in this house? Probably if interest rates go up a lot, the the sales price of my house is going to go down. And it's going to go down right uh, around the time that my hmm. uh, mortgage payments are going to become more difficult for me to pay. So I just think that that's, uh, there's just no need to do any of that stuff. Right. Well, I think that was really the essence of the the mortgage bubble, was really the variable rates, not so much because people could generally qualify or they could at least make the payments on the initial rate. It was after things started ticking up and payments were doubling. That was when the problems were. Absolutely. And there was this idea that, well, I could just refinance before the before the interest, uh, you know, the hike kicks in. And if for some reason uh, you can't do that, then you get stuck. And uh, I also am a big believer that you really should have 20% down on your house. and And you should have more money above that for you know your emergency reserve if the furnace bursts or whatever so that you can get a better interest rate and you're sort of financially set to really live in the house so i am you know i think that it's not something that you rush into or you cut corners in a way that makes it affordable for you when it's really not affordable you know one of the things i remember years ago setting up my kids when they were very little with uh, three different jars or four different jars we had the the short-term investment, the spend it now, 
the longer-term investment and then the give-it-away kind of thing. So the, so mm-hmm. there were four. Some people do three. But I, I noticed in here that you have, uh, what is it, number nine, What you can do what you can do to support the social safety net. Yeah. And there's something of that, too, is mm-hmm. being aware that there are other people who need maybe more than you do. I think that's such a bedrock thing, and I'm glad that you were conveying that to your kids. I think that that's uh, – I wish we had – written more in our book about how to communicate to kids financial responsibility and social responsibility. You know, I, I'm very proud of the saving and investing that I've done, but it's just a simple fact that I would be bankrupt right now if it weren't for Medicare and Medicaid and Social Security that, that basically had paid for almost all the expenses that my brother-in-law incurred uh, you know, because of his disability. And, uh, you, know, I, you know, without those programs, I would have been sunk. And I think that we all, we can protect each other against these risks that would otherwise really be catastrophic. You know, no one has enough money in the bank to uh, to deal with a really complicated cancer diagnosis or serious disability. And these things do happen in life, and we need a social safety net to protect each other and also to, to be good to each other because I think it's, uh, uh, you know, we... we we have to be good neighbors to each other as well. Now, speaking of protecting, we have a chapter on insurance. Yes. Talk about the kinds of insurance you ought to have and maybe some of the kinds that you could skip. So I think that it's important to make sure that that if something bad happens, that that that, that doesn't fundamentally offer, alter your life or your family's life. So I'm a, I, I think it's really important to have good health insurance and good life insurance. Uh, and not to use those as investments, but to use those to protect your family if something happens. So, you know, there's a, you can, life insurance can be endlessly complicated. And I think the short answer that I would give is just, you know, you're not using it as an investment. You're using it to make sure that if you drop dead tomorrow, your family's protected. Uh, I, so th- those are sort of the big things. And, you know, with your auto insurance, you want to have liability insurance so that if something bad happens to someone, it, you know, with your car, you're protected in the same way. A lot of the other insurance that we have, you can really do less, um, especially if you have a good strategic reserve in the bank, which which we recommend. So, for example, I've never filed a homeowner's insurance claim, uh, so I just have a large deductible on my homeowner's insurance, and that saves me money in two ways. First of all, you know, it's cheaper for the insurance company when they're not dealing with these small claims. But also the people who have these high deductible policies are the people who don't think that they're going to need their homeowner's insurance. So you're kind of lumping yourself in with a safer group of people, and so your monthly premium is lower. And the same is true with my auto insurance. I happen to drive a really old, crummy car, so all I really have on it is liability insurance. But having a really high deductible on your homeowner's and your car insurance is, is a good way to save money. And, uh, and I think very often that's that's some of the low-hanging fruit uh, that we have. Um, yeah. Harold Pollack is the co-author with Helene Olin of the <coughs> Index Card, Why Personal Finance Doesn't Have to be Complicated. Harold, thanks for joining us. Great to have Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. 
Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.